I represent amazing women who are leaders and I help them get what they want. Today's episode is with Lindsay Kagawa Colas. Lindsay is a pioneering sports agent and currently the executive vice president of talent in the collective at Wasserman. She represents many influential Olympic medalists, including some of your favorite WNBA players like Diana Taurasi, Brianna Stewart, Sue Bird, Brittany Griner, and Maya Moore, to name a few. She is celebrated as the first agent to ever negotiate an inclusion rider and maternity protections into athlete endorsement contracts. Prior to Wasserman, Lindsay worked for BDA Sports Management, helping to manage athletes like Carmelo Anthony, and eventually founding the Women's Elite Division and their charitable giving arm. Before her career as an agent, Lindsay was an elite athlete and student at Stanford University. She is an agent for civic leadership, an agent for social justice in sports, and I'm so grateful to have her contribute to this project. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Lindsay Kagawa Colas. To get started, Lindsay, I thought I'd ask, um, just get to know you a little bit and sort of how your, how you think about how your life outlook was formed. Um, what was it like for you growing up? I think high level, my, my dad was a high school basketball coach and mm-hmm. guidance counselor at the local high school. Um, he and my mom actually started dating in high school. They were high school sweethearts at Berkeley High where... He was the point guard on the basketball team. My mom was actually the sports reporter for the school paper. Um, So growing up, my mom was a paralegal um, and then went into uh, world book sales, actually, so that she could be home when we got home. Okay. So I would say that education was always a big deal. Family was always a really big deal. We lived about a mile away from... My dad's parents, my Japanese grandparents played a really significant role mm-hmm. in my early life. And so I think having, um, you know, their, what would I call it? I guess, I, you know, like a, a cultural sort of home base mm-hmm. of sorts, mm-hmm. like an expectation about <laughs> honoring your family. Yeah. And doing yeah. things the right way, but also having just a really loving, supportive family around me, I think was really formative. You know, somehow in there, there must have been a sprinkling of revolutionary. I'm not exactly sure where it came from. Mm-hmm. My mom's more the one to argue with customer service over a refund. So maybe it, it came from there. <laughs> Um, it's funny thinking about things as an adult versus when you were a kid and and Mm -hmm. sort of how it all came together. But certainly I think my dad being a coach and guidance counselor plays directly into the the role that I am in today. Mm -hmm. But I do remember early, early days being really interested as an elementary school kid in activism. I wouldn't have called it that then, but it was sort of the beginnings of save the whales and movements like that. And I had teachers who were really open to students ideas in the Bay area. And I think we were able to, 
they were able to structure a lot of learning about what we were really interested in. I remember, I think it was fourth or fifth grade setting up a shop with like some parents' leather scraps to make these bracelets to pseudo sell to save the whales and also doing some sort of a protest. So I'm not exactly sure where it all came from, but it must have been some collection of ingredients with that. Fascinating to hear about your sort of educational experience and how um, your teachers really took an interest in, in what students are learning. That doesn't seem to be the case. Maybe it was uh, at some point, but it doesn't seem like that's where and you is public education, correct? Yes, I was always yeah. in public school. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's so much the case anymore. Um, well, it's hard. What? I mean, from from what I hear, and my little guy's not quite old enough for me mm-hmm. to be in this battle yet, but class size makes that really challenging. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So that's sort of your foundation. You, you're you growing up, you're playing, uh, I take it, high-level sports, um, end up playing uh, major Division One college volleyball at, at Stanford. Um, and I think you majored uh, in political science. So talk me through, like, what was uh, recruitment like for you? And then what was the student-athlete experience like for you? Yeah, well, it's funny representing athletes who are so super elite mm-hmm. now. Because thinking about my experience, you know, versus theirs, and certainly my talent versus theirs, mm-hmm. is always a very humbling experience. I think um, very early, I would say, well, in college, playing next to people who were going to be really successful pros mm. gave me a really good sense of my place in the world. Right, like I knew enough; I was good enough to understand what made them really, really great but also self-aware enough to know what I didn't possess, but also knowing that I had other things that could be really helpful. And so I actually think being at a place like Stanford, I remember during the recruiting, um, you know, and I was a top prospect in my class, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't necessarily like a national team member. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you go and, I was more of a like small fish in a mm-hmm. big pond and very much mm-hmm. a role player and, and totally okay with that. But during the recruiting process, I remember a coach, you know, actually said to me, Hey, are you sure you want to go to Stanford where everyone, everyone's going to be so much smarter than you? And I was like, well, thanks for that. Huh. Um, Cause last time I checked, my grades were actually pretty good, but I yeah. think what he meant, you know, was, do you want, to feel small in that regards. And I, my answer, you know, at 17 was yes. Hmm. And I don't know really where that audacity comes from, Mm -hmm. because I think you have to be pretty brave to feel like you may be outgunned a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I think I also had a lot of confidence that I could figure it out. And I think I did. Mm -hmm. And you know, I made the choice to go. It was also because there was another person at my position who was super, super talented. We were both offered scholarships the same year, Hmm. which was, which is really unusual in volleyball for that position because there's typically only one of you on the court. And so to come Mm -hmm. in the same time to say yes to that scholarship, you know, that there is a real chance that you're going to be the backup. Mm-hmm. It ended up where we both played a certain number of years because of some red shirts and injuries. And somehow it worked out like so many things in life do, <laughs> because I think we both made the choice to go where we wanted to go to school. Yeah. And, and in doing that things work out. And so I think 
perhaps having a guidance counselor for a dad helped with that, mm-hmm. but I, I chose where I really wanted to be. And I also got some really good advice from Russ Rose, who had somebody in my position was the, is the Penn state coach. And he's just a legend. Mm-hmm. And he and I had become very friendly perhaps because I knew that he couldn't recruit me, but I really trusted him. I had gone to camp a couple summers so that I could experience his coaching in high school. And he said, don't let your ego get in the way of going where you want to go. And I'd always wanted to go to Stanford. And knowing that I wasn't going to be the only person in my position, that maybe I wasn't even the priority at that position that year, I didn't let that get in the way. And I think that was a big decision to make. And I made it through tears at 17. Mm. But I'm really happy that I did that. I'm really happy I did the hard thing and and took that on from day one, because I think part of being in an environment like that is about finding your place mm-hmm. amongst so much excellence. And a lot of times that's about figuring out a path that maybe hasn't been walked before. Mm-hmm. And I might not have articulated that at 17, mm-hmm. but I do think that's what happened while I was there. So, you know, the recruiting process was fun. It's letters and offers and people are interested. Mm-hmm. And I took my visits and, you know, I narrowed down my list and I got to see some campuses and I had a list that it was established programs. It was, up, it was you know, programs on the rise. It was very heavy academic. Other options were much more sports oriented. Mm-hmm. I think I ended up in a place that was a, a really nice combination of both. you strike me as someone who's not scared um someone who's a trailblazer and so i'm wondering uh you know there's not many women uh, in in sports representation um why did you want to get into sports representation in the first place um back when you were i think we were with bda and when you were first starting out take me back to the to that time (laughs) well i don't think there was a moment in time i remember being an undergrad and feeling a little bit envious of, of folks who could say, hey, here's my path, right? Like, right. I'm going to go to yeah. law school and be this kind of a lawyer. Or I'm pre-med, I'm going to be this kind of a doctor. And mm-hmm. there was something very comforting about, or that seemed like it might be very comforting, even on a really challenging path. I think in knowing where you were trying to go, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I think I was starting to get a pretty decent sense of what I was good at mm-hmm. or what potentially m- made me different was something that I should invest in. And, you know, I think that what it really came down to was, I think, being someone who had come up through athletics, you know, dad being a coach, mm-hmm. having played sports at a really high level, been, you know, having been really close to excellence and knowing it intimately. Um, I did think I knew that I could play a role in communicating mm-hmm. with elite athletes. Mm-hmm. I felt like it, even if I was not one of them, that I could understand sort of what, what they were doing or how to help them reach their potential or accomplish their goals, mm-hmm. or at least how to ask those right questions and I could figure out the rest. And so 
you know, my first interest, you know, as you noted, was really helping them with their philanthropic efforts. Mm-hmm. You know, this was over 20 years ago before that was very much front and center and athlete activism right. was, you know, such a very clear lane for people. Mm-hmm. So this was early, early. And I think I discovered that because in my community of other student athletes in school, I felt often like so many of of the elite athletes really were not ultra connected to other campus resources. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I was at an institution that was very clear about academics being a priority and everyone who chose to be there, I think, expressed that commitment in their decision to go there. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really figure out some of the stuff on campus that, I think I really benefited from benefited from specifically the Haas Center for Public Service mm-hmm. until I was more a professional student, so to speak, where I was done my senior year. I was spending, I was able to choose, you know, classes that had that perhaps would have been happening when right. I had practice for mm-hmm. the three years or four years prior. So that was an experience that that felt very accelerated to me and sort of figuring that out and wishing that maybe I'd had that opportunity a little bit sooner. But I think there's a process everybody goes through as an undergrad and really figuring it out, mm-hmm. figure out how to think, you figure out how to write, you figure out how to plan, right? You figure out what you're really interested in. And so it took me till about junior, senior year to really get that. And I actually had, you know, a professor who was a founder of a foundation in Oakland called Philanthropic Ventures, this guy named Bill Somerville, who was really central, I think, to me, to all of this coming together for me. And he was, I I think, considered sort of a radical figure Mm -hmm. in philanthropy, which sounds hilarious, right? (laughs) But like any profession, there's sort of the tried and true and elite, right? Established foundations and ways of doing things. And then there's the people who maybe he was there at those and then decided he wanted to do it differently and didn't want to be constrained by these rules. And he was great and he was a guest professor and I was lucky enough to be in a course and meet him. And he spent a lot of time with me talking about these things. And it wasn't something that he had specifically thought about, but in working with a lot of high net worth donors who wanted to be creative and who were able to use their experience in philanthropy and connecting with grassroots organizations to get a lot smarter and I think to feel fulfilled and to continue to gain life experience, it was a, a no-brainer sort of association for me. Mm-hmm. And so in spending time with Bill, that's what sort of led me to think about athlete philanthropy as, I think, a career. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're in college, like you don't really know what that means at the at the time. And so what I applied for was a fellowship that was funded through a competitive process through the Haas Center and ended up winning it and was able to design this immersion program at the East Bay Community Foundation to really start to dive a little bit deeper into how high net worth donors are served by community foundations, which are real community institutions that have both grant making capabilities mm-hmm. and expertise, but also, you know, specifically as their foundation, they do grant making. But then they also advise donors on how to do theirs. Right. Mm. And so I I had been drawn to these as perhaps underutilized vehicles for professional athletes who were being written about a lot in the media of having these, you know, failed foundations that were just paying their 
family member. Yeah, yeah. Right? And maybe did a turkey drive every year, but you know, weren't really substantively connected. So for me, it was really about figuring out how to utilize existing resources, how to evaluate organizations, because I think I intuitively felt like there was a real missing link between getting professional athletes connected with the grassroots um, leaders Mm -hmm. and organizations that were really doing the work and had been doing it well for a really long time, but were perhaps underfunded or under-resourced or just unknown. Yeah. And so that was really what I wanted to build a business around is, is doing that because I had come to have so much respect for direct service. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't personally going to be a social worker. I wasn't personally going to run a grassroots foundation. I didn't feel I I had so much respect for the people doing that at a really high level, but I didn't feel like that was my specific role. I was much more of a connector Mm -hmm. in that sense and wanted to be more of a generalist and really understanding kind of who's doing the best work in a lot of different spaces Mm-hmm. versus going super deep in one. So that was the business I wanted to build is to connect athletes with those organizations. And that's when I did my informational interview with Bill. And so I didn't start out at BDA saying, hey, I want to represent professional athletes in a traditional way. It really right. was an informational interview saying, hey, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Is this a service that you would ever pay to provide to your clients Mm -hmm. or under what circumstances do you think they would pay for it? And what would that look like? And what it turned into was Bill saying, Hey, you know, I was 22, 23 at the time. Why don't you come be my executive assistant and you can just build this service in for my clients. Right. (laughs) And so I said, yes. (laughs) And so I was very lucky, I think to, you know, end up in a, or find myself in a conversation with somebody who was so open mm-hmm. and entrepreneurial and, and Bill really is. And, and to be drawn to saying, Hey, this, this is something my clients could use. How can I get it? <laughs> right. And yeah. check multiple boxes. And it was a good move. I was super hungry. I was a pretty good assistant. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot being there. Cause I basically sat, you know, 10 feet away from him for a handful of years. Yeah, yeah. So that's where it started. So you leave BDA um, and you want to blaze a new path, specifically with athletes who are women. Um, So the other big difference to me is now you're going to a huge agency. So... Uh, maybe talk to me just about like, what's it like? How do you do agency uh, at this point? Um, start wherever you want. I think really it started at BDA and it started with Bill giving me the freedom to, I think, use my time to also be entrepreneurial and think about how to build a business from within mm-hmm. BDA. So that started by by proving that representing women could make money. Mm. And didn't mean make all the money, but could be profitable. And I did that pretty quickly. And I think so much of that was about the fact that Diana was my first client. Yeah. <laughs> and though Diana is, you know, rather infamous at this point for not saying yes to many things, what she, I mean, she's 
you know, a dear friend, like very like family at this point, it's been mm-hmm. almost 20 years of working with her, wow. but for everything she doesn't say yes to what she does. And I just mean like appearances or interviews yeah. or whatnot. Um, what she does say yes to is when you need her help. And I think what that, what that meant with Diana was, Hey, if I want to build a business, you know, formed around this radical idea mm-hmm. that women should receive the same level of service as the men, because that's what I did at BDA. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any, any differently. Of course I could say, Oh, well, you know, this was about equality and women should get this, but, and yeah, that was of course a part of it. I'm built to think that way, mm-hmm. but really it was just about doing the same things for her as I would do for any other client at BDA. And at the time that was mostly, I was working a lot with Carmelo Anthony, who was one of my main guys. Mm -hmm. Drew Gooden was one of my main guys. And it was, you know, whatever they needed. And you had to be responsive and there was an expectation of service. And so at the time I wouldn't have called it radical. I think it was perhaps perceived that way from the outside Mm -hmm. because the numbers justify the level of service. For men, Mm -hmm. um, for the women, that was, you know, a value statement for me, Mm -hmm. more so than an earnings one. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the business started on the foundation of Diana receiving at least the same level of service as any of her her male peers. Mm -hmm. And then her saying, hey, I think that more people should get this. And so I started building a client list that was really based on who Diana thought we should represent. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And so that's not necessarily how other practices are built. You know, some <laughs> yeah. other practices perhaps are, are built, you know, not to be in competition or not to annoy or whatever it is. Right. Or to just elevate a single star. But she was very much a part of. I think identifying who was a fit for what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so she was always central to that. So that's how the business started. Mm -hmm. And, and it was always built around elite and being able to provide that level of service. So it was never going to be about big numbers, but it would be about big names. And I think it would be about, you know, players with a lot of integrity who wanted to show up for each other. And I think that continues to be sort of a thread that you can pull through all of our clients today. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they're not going to you know, be out for blood when they're on the court playing each other. That happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that what makes our practice unique is that we represent a lot of women who understand, I think, their role in being part of the collective, which is what, why we sort of branded the business that way, but really showing up for each other and understanding that I think it was exemplified really when you see like Megan Rapinoe's Players' Tribune mm-hmm. article that she did during the WNBA season mm-hmm. about, show, you know, soccer players showing up for WNBA players, right? And being in solidarity and understanding that success of, you know, one woman is good for the rest. Mm-hmm. And I think we represent a lot of clients who really understand that, who it's not just about their their portfolio. It's also about what am I doing to grow the pie for everybody Mm -hmm. and being excited about the opportunity to be part of a legacy that is in service of many people and making the whole industry better. And so 
that's sort of, I think, where we've put the stake in the ground. And I'm not sure that we would have, that Dan, you know, my partner at Wasserman, he was there a year before me. Mm-hmm. Um, he came over from Octagon. I, I, we didn't define it that way to begin with, but we had very similar client lists. Okay. And he and I became friendly because he worked with Sue Bird. I worked with Diana Taurasi and we just spent a lot of time together. And it was during a time where, you know, women in basketball weren't getting a lot of action off the court from a marketing perspective. Right. And I think we both respected each other's practices. And so when I, when I left BDA to go to Wasserman, it wasn't really about basketball at all. It was Mm -hmm. really about understanding that for women's basketball to take a step to become, I guess, relevant or a player in, you know, the off quarter marketing conversation Mm -hmm. that I was going to need to be close to the action as it related to Olympics. And also what was happening already in soccer Okay, where you saw a lot of the action happening with Mia Hamm, who Dan represented Mm -hmm. and that class of soccer players. And I knew that I needed to be sort of proximal to that action to sort to be there when someone passed to be able to then talk about basketball. Right. And also because I wouldn't be able to do other sports and and BDA was very much a boutique basketball agency and was very good at it. But I knew that to really elevate women's basketball, frankly, I needed I needed to be on a platform that that went beyond that. Hmm. And Wasserman had a had a real deep connection to Olympics and representing women generally. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I made the move and have been here now for 10 years mm-hmm. and will stay for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Because of that commitment being so real. And because the platform that we've built, you know, in and around representing women who stand for something and who want to lead the change and and influence cultural conversation and lead in it, Mm. it's a perfect home for that because of the depth and the breadth of of our work as an agency overall. Lindsay, let me back up for a second. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wear so many hats. Um. But if a five-year-old asks you, like, what is your job? What do you, <laughs> what, what do you do? What, how do you answer that? Um, I, the way I explain it to my four-year-old, actually, he knows <laughs> that I'm a sports agent. He says mm-hmm. that he's going to be one also so that he can hang out with me, which is really cute. <laughs> Apparently, the, the pandemic before he went back to school was a really good experience for him. Oh, wow. I, I say that I represent amazing women who are leaders and I help them get what they want. Part of me too is wondering, you know, you said you had a four year old. Um, I'm just thinking about the demanding nature of the job. Uh, and the high level of service you're providing and, and the sort of um, the strategic nature too. Um, and to be strategic, you got to be on top of so much. Um, so, I mean, how do you cope with that? Uh, just the hours and the attention that it takes. Well, I think there, there's a difference between what happens now versus, you know, what happened when I was the junior person. Mm. 
And so now I have a team. Mm -hmm. And but there's nothing that I ask anyone to do that either I haven't done Mm -hmm. or I'm not willing to do. It's just about understanding sort of how to prioritize. Mm -hmm. And so there are certain things like, you know, important client conversations, obviously, you know, conversation with general managers, the big strategy discussions that I I know that I'm critical to. And that's why I'm hired is for the experience that I can bring to that Mm -hmm. and things that really put the relationship that are central to the the relationship I'm always going to be involved in. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, clients know that if they call or there's something big that I'm going to be available. And that's just without question. I mean, there are a few exceptions, like maybe I'm in labor Mm -hmm. or something, but thankfully, you know, the last time I was in labor, that didn't happen. (laughs) But we, but we also have a nice support system where I, I know that Dan is trusted to counsel clients through big moments too, if that's mm-hmm. ever necessary. And so I think that it's important to have those resources where I'm not so protective of a relationship that if something goes wrong and you know I'm for whatever reason unavailable and literally the only example I could think of was labor. Mm-hmm. And even then I might take a call. It kind of depends on where, where I am in the process. I think. <laughs> um, you know, I opted for drugs and, and so maybe I'd be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've worked really hard, I think, on a relationship that I'm not so protective of that there isn't room for someone else to give really good advice to, if that's necessary. Yeah. But, you know, the foundation of my practice has always been that relationship and people knowing that they can trust. You know, I can't make guarantees most of the time, and I, I typically don't. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is promise a process and prom- promise honesty. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means saying things that people don't want to hear. And it doesn't mean it's an easy conversation. I think I'm I'm pretty good at confrontation or pretty good at difficult conversations, but that doesn't mean that I enjoy them more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the willingness to do that and then have a really good team that's empowered to handle stuff that you trust is important because that's hard in this game. I think that a lot of people are afraid to hand the reins over because they're afraid of, you know, the relationship with the client right. being compromised somehow. And that's a real threat in an industry with not a lot of rules mm-hmm. as it relates to poaching clients and, and taking clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got a really good team and I think I'm also really honest about, Hey, I need to, I'm with Drew. I got to call you in an hour. And I represent women who are typically very okay with that. Mm-hmm. because they have lives too. And maybe that's part of why I chose to work with women is because I saw the writing on the wall of how the men's side is built and what it's built around. And I frankly wasn't super interested in being a part of that. It was so established sort of what it takes to be successful in that world. And I, I wasn't all that interested in doing it. I, I know I could be competitive. Mm-hmm. If that's what I wanted to do, I could a hundred percent go out and probably sign and represent men. But I, I think having done it, having worked in that world at a really high level, and this is no knock on anyone who chooses to do that. But for me, I, I wanted to spend my time 
I think cultivating a business that I could be really proud of, not because I broke barriers. I mean, obviously there's firsts that we talk about all the time that I'm very proud of, mm-hmm. but I think in the end, this is a, this is a job that to your original question, there's really not, there are not hours. There, there is a 24 seven element to it. Mm-hmm. And so to do that and to sacrifice, you know, what, people might pursue as a work-life balance. It's really a work-life integration. And these are the type, these are the clients I wanted to be part of my life. Mm. And so those are the people that I choose to represent are people who it's not transactional in that way. And that there's, you know, a, a relationship there that's grounded in something that goes way beyond, you know, perhaps just a agent, typical agent or, you know, business relationship. Right. Hmm. So let's talk more about your uh, political engagement and advocacy um, as well as uh, for your athletes. Um, You know, I kind of think of you as an agent for social justice, um, an agent for civic leadership in sports. Um, And maybe to start specifically, I remember reading um, somewhere, uh, just doing research on you. Um, and I think they're referring to Ibtihaj Muhammad, mm-hmm. um, you know, the world-class Olympic fencer for those who are listening. And it said she was wondering if she could be political. Um, and I, and I read that you told her not only that she could be political, but that she had to be. And I was wondering if, could you start off? What did you mean by that? Well, you know, women in sport are really inherently political, right? Women in any space where they, that wasn't really built for them. Mm-hmm. They just are political. Like our very existence, let alone success, is very political. Mm-hmm. And, you know, representing so many women who were, you know, intersectional in nature or who thrive in, in environments where perhaps they are at this moment, the only one and, and hope to be a part of creating environments where in the future, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. You really don't, you don't get to make a choice in my mind. Like if you, if you want to be a part of change, if you want to make the world better, then you have to lean into I think those differences, because I think, or I know it's what makes you powerful and unique. And because thinking about, you know, who we respect, even if the dollars don't flow at that very moment, I want to represent the kind of people who, when they wake up in the morning, they're proud of the decisions they made. And when we think about legacy, they're the type of icons that people are most inspired by. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. John Carlos is only, you know, now starting to be recognized for his trailblazing work as an activist. Mm-hmm. There are so many athlete activists, many of whom are women who, you know, still don't get the recognition that they deserve. And so in advising, and this was my first conversation with Ibtihaj, and we have a lot of great conversations now, but she was at this sort of crossroads where I think she had to decide, do I, do I do this? Cause this was also at a moment where we were sort of at the height 
or starting starting the peak of so much Islamophobia that was driven by the administration, the Muslim mm-hmm. ban. Mm-hmm. And to make that choice at that moment, it was going to be explosive. And part of it is you have to be ready and willing to answer for that. And she was. She's really, really smart. Mm-hmm. And the way she articulates her you know, decision and her commitment to her faith and to wear hijab, I think is so powerful. And it just felt really right. And it felt like it was a moment that she needed to seize. And it felt like, you know, just intuitively in conversation with her, like, this was the right thing. And it might be the hard thing. Mm-hmm. But it really was the right thing. And that this was a choice that was going to be critical, not just, I think, to her immediate financial success, mm-hmm. but for how she looked back on how how she built her career and what she was about. Because she was relatively unknown at that point outside of fencing circles. Mm-hmm. And so her introduction, I think, to the larger... I guess community, Olympic community and sponsor community, I felt really strongly needed to be exactly who she is. And and all none of that was manufactured. We might have mm-hmm. helped her focus more, but everything that you see from the women that we represent is authentically them. We're just there to sort of hone and focus and help to elevate and amplify. Mm-hmm. The work that is really in them already. Mm-hmm. I think we we connect opportunities to that, but we're just helping them be who they are or her, who they are meant to be. So so many ways we could go. I appreciate all that. <laughs> all that. Uh, well, actually, wow. there's one thing I could add. I think what I didn't say was, and that was a lot, but I think choosing to work with women just generally before the opportunity to work with someone like Ibtihaj at that moment. Mm-hmm. was so clearly like by definition political. Right. I think choosing to work with women specifically mm-hmm. was for me, you mentioned sort of the political science background mm-hmm. and very like social justice oriented in that focus was very much about this this intersection of this marriage between social justice and business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And representing women, specifically black women, mm-hmm or just otherwise marginalized women, you know, I represent represent Paralympians as well. um, I think represents that in a really unique way. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not sure I knew that I was choosing that at the time, but I do think that it felt right because that was the way that I could do the, all the things that I was most interested in and it became a job. I'm trying to understand the dynamic, um, especially as a, as a young professional. Um, so you are your own person. You are um, someone who is political, um, not just privately, publicly. And you, at the same time, you work for a much larger organization that was here uh, before you and will be here after you. Um, and we're in the midst of this sort of conscious capitalism wave. Um, I'm wondering, have you had to sort of, uh, 
I don't know, navigate any um, sort of company organizational dynamics um, as you sort of lean into to everything you believe in? No, I, I would say not in the traditional sense of like, hey, views are my own, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't, right. on my Instagram, it doesn't have that sort of qualifier. Mm-hmm. That's just never something that I think, look, I'm raised by a family that you don't dishonor your family, right? Like Mm -hmm. you go into the restaurant and you know that you are not going to make a scene Mm -hmm. as a kid. So that's really interesting. I think foundation and backdrop for what I do now. So I do think there is sort of fundamentally something that's always going to keep in mind. And that's part of the advice I have to give is like, hey, here, here are our options. And here are the risks. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the client has to decide. And so I have to be savvy enough to understand what is the most sort of extreme risk that this is. And often that is a corporate one, Mm -hmm. right, where a sponsor might not like this or whatever that is. I personally don't get any pressure specifically from Casey or Wasserman as an entity Mm -hmm. to regulate my activism. I'd like to think that's because we're on the right side of it, mm-hmm. but it's, but really that work is just an extension of what I do as a job every single day, advocating for equality mm-hmm. and inclusion and investment in women. Mm-hmm. So I guess the short answer is no, I, I don't get that pressure, but I also think that there, you know, I am a professional, obviously. Mm-hmm. And always need to be mindful of that. And a lot of that just plays into how I need to counsel my clients where there are risks associated. Mm-hmm. And you have to be thoughtful and you have to understand what you're taking on. Mm-hmm. And so I think having that understanding is critical to me being able to do my job. But it's not something that restricts me in any way from I think, serving my clients and helping them get what they want. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So that that reminds me too. So we just went through the uh, the WNBA wobble, as it's called. Yes. And you know, I'm thinking, I'm imagining what what the conversation must be like uh, that you have with clients. As you know, we saw a lot of players uh, didn't go to the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you know, there was there was a lot of talk, you know, across sports leagues too. What are we gonna do? Um, WNBA players decided to do a say her name campaign dedicated to Brianna Taylor. Um, then you see <laughs> all the players come out with uh, vote Warnock shirts. Um, I'm wondering what, what kind of conversations were you having as you, as you talked about the risks involved, uh, the options, um, could you clue me into to how those went? Yeah, the WNBA conversations, frankly, I I won't say easy, but I do think it's straightforward in that it was never a choice whether or not the season was going to be about social justice mm-hmm. and centering that as a part of the players' participation and, and leadership through the pandemic. That wasn't the question. The question was, how can we do it most effectively? Mm-hmm. And so my job in that is to, you know, advise on what makes it effective, you know, what'll, 
what will be in service to the movement leaders who have been doing this work for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And then also to make sure the WNBA players get, I think, properly acknowledged for the work that they do as, as athlete activist leaders. And frankly, I think models for collective action mm-hmm. within sport. And so it's, you know, it's big conversations from how brands can help to support our clients and doing outreach to make sure brands are aware of that. And just that very personal support of, of what was, I think, a very emotional and challenging time that, that the women, I think, really persevered and gritted through being in that bubble. It was also a really unifying and, I think, healing place to be. Yeah. But you also get zero personal space. So yeah. you know, that's not easy for anybody. Um, but to be together to deal with so much of that trauma, I think, was a really good thing. And I think it allowed for organizing in a way that we would have hoped and maybe hadn't, maybe hadn't imagined all the possibilities, but I, I, or maybe we hadn't imagined how healing it would be, but I think we did know the potential around the organizing and the power of having those 144 women in the same place. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, you know, being that support for clients is always central and then making sure that they're getting the right advice, you know, from our group and the professionals within Wasserman, but also, you know, outside. I think Mm -hmm. this is where my experience and commitment to grassroots and to movement leaders comes into play so much. And certainly my work through Athletes for Impact as well and really centering grassroots leaders in these conversations. So, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Making sure that women like Alicia Garza are in conversation with union leaders about when we say Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and when we say that we are supporting the movement, what does that actually mean? And making sure that that the real leaders in that space and the and the women who are doing that work on the ground every day, that we're hearing from them on how we can best help. Mm-hmm. And so it was... A, a big part of my job was making sure the right people were in those conversations. The union did a really good job of that, you know, as well. And, you know, be, just being supportive overall, you know, the war not conversation, we still are, you know, playing, I think a, a role in helping to organize WNBA athletes around the Georgia campaigns. So I think just, you know, it's day to day, just being in support of the work that needs to be done. And just to add some context on this backstory, if you're listening, you don't know. When the WNBA players decided to dedicate their season to the Say Her Name campaign and support the Black Lives Matter movement, Kelly Leffler, who was the owner of the WNBA team, the Atlanta Dream, and was a United States senator at the time, and a big Donald Trump supporter, uh, she objected to this support. And in response, the players did their research and realized a Reverend Raphael Warnock was running against her. And they decided to back him by publicly wearing shirts that read Vote Warnock. And now we recorded this episode before the January 5th runoff between Warnock and Leffler. So we didn't know the end result at that time. But Warnock ended up winning with 51% of the vote, which meant that the Senate would be tied at 50 Republican senators and 50 Democratic senators, leaving tie-breaking votes in the hands of Vice President Kamala Harris. It's also important to remember that uh, at the time, Warnock was not receiving the sort of polling numbers that would suggest that he might win. He wasn't even 
polling sort of the leading Democrat candidate. And of course, we can't know if WNBA players' protests uh, directly caused him to win, uh, but I think it definitely had something to do with it. What is it that you hope uh, the people you work with, the athletes you work with, what do, what do you hope they take away from you uh, when they leave or you leave? Or what do you, what would you leave us with today? Well, that's a big question, Zach. <laughs> I think that something that I talk to my, my clients a lot about and, and friends and everybody else, aside from freezing your eggs, <laughs> which I think is a really good idea for women. <laughs> and I, I have conversations with clients about that kind of stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to know what you want for all of us. And to be able to articulate that, because if you can't, you're really never going to be happy. Mm. And you can't ask for what you want, or you can't have your agent or anyone else ask for what you want. If you really don't know what that is and you might be figuring out exactly sort of what the ask is or where you're trying to go. And it may evolve over time, but I do think that getting to the heart of that and that might just be, Hey, I want to feel like X. Yeah. It's different for everyone, but I think understanding what you actually want, like what success looks like in any situation is vital Mm -hmm. because I can't do my job for someone unless I understand what she really wants. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I I also can't do it unless I understand what the person on the other side of a negotiation really wants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's great when everybody wants the same thing, but that isn't always the case. Mm -hmm. But either way, I just, I just think, especially, I think especially women um, in thinking about, how we negotiate for salaries or relationships or making decisions about how to prioritize, you know, kids, family, whatever it is. If you figure out what you want, then things start becoming a a lot more simple. This podcast is a part of the Coaching for Civic Leadership Project an inquiry into the art of coaching for civic leadership, which I describe as the act of coaching to improve our society, with an eye toward developing leadership, problem solving, and social interest and understanding. If you'd like to keep up with this project, you can subscribe to the podcast and also subscribe to updates, writings, and interviews on our website, coachingforcivicleadership.com. Thank you.